Amen. With all these masks on, I feel like a bank teller in a cowboy movie looking out at you guys. Getting robbed again. You doing good? You got the joy of the Lord? Yeah. Amen. Let's get your Bibles. So get your Bibles out this morning. We're going to be in the Word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is our third message series coming out of this text here. By God's grace, I'm going to finish it up this morning. But uh, get there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. After I thank God for the word, Father, I thank you for the word this morning. I thank you for these people, Lord, who come to the house of God to worship you. And Father, we're not controlled by fear, but we, we run by faith, Lord God. And we know that you said not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So we're here today, Lord God. And we, we want to hear your word and we want you to change us with the word. Holy Spirit, let the word penetrate more than just our minds, but our hearts so that it will affect the way we live. I pray you would change each of us from the inside out by your word today. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. amen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 4. This should sound real familiar to you. Um, we're going to finish up this little piece today. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And we'll stop right there. Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians here, and, and we've done two parts of this already, but he's encouraging them to live ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. He starts off, now we request, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the, the pretext to all of this. And he's saying, live ready. Why? Because we don't know when Jesus coming is coming. We don't know the day or the hour. We can see the signs and we can tell the seasons, but the church has always lived expectant of his coming, amen? He, he could come soon or he could take another hundred years. We don't know. But what we do know is the Bible tells us to live ready for his coming, Living in a state of spiritual readiness is the only way to keep your spiritual edge. Let me say that again. Living in a state of spiritual readiness is the only way to keep your spiritual edge. The minute you let your edge get dull, it's, it's hard to sharpen it up again. Amen? Anybody remember being young? You know, when I was young, I could hop in the gym after, you know, neglecting my body and within a couple months, whip myself into top shape again. Now, just jumping in the gym, I need two days rest just from the jump. And it seems like you just can't get back to where you were no matter how hard you try. And, uh, you know, what is that? It's, it's neglecting your edge. And when you lose your edge and, you know, you, you're older, it's hard to get that edge back. It's hard to recover it. So uh, in, in understanding our spiritual edge, don't lose it. Don't let it get dull. Keep it sharp. Keep it ready. Keep oil in your lamp today. Amen. 
Don't be a foolish virgin. Don't get spiritually lazy. Don't compromise and, and, and partake of sin. Live in a state of spiritual readiness. Now, we were told several things here uh, by the Apostle Paul. That he's speaking to the Thessalonians there, and, but he's speaking to us too. We're told, number one, to not be quickly shaken. We shouldn't lose our composure. What does that mean? That we as Christians should have mental stability. Mental stability. And you know, as I covered this, we talked about the fact that, you know, we shouldn't be tossed by every wind of doctrine. We, our faith shouldn't be shaken. We, we should be mentally stable about the things of God, about right and wrong, amen? amen. Come on, it seems like uh, this world can be convinced of something that was wrong forever. Oh, now it's right because so, someone says said it's right. And there's no mental stability in that, especially for a Christian. Then we're told not to be disturbed, and that speaks of emotional stability. It's amazing how if you don't have emotional stability, any stressor can just make you come unglued, can make you unravel, amen? Yesterday, we, everything was going fine, having a nice day, and all of a sudden, the dryer just decided to stop working, and that set off a chain of events of pulling out washer machines and pulling out parts and, and hoses, and, to, and it was just a mess. Now, I must say that my emotional st stability, can't even say stability while telling the story, is affected by things like that. Unexpected things, the car breaks down, there's a problem, you get a, something in the mail that you weren't expecting. Anybody? Anybody human? Two people, two humans, amen, I got a few humans here. And all of a sudden, that, our emotional stability can be upset. Now, as Christians, we should be more emotionally stable than anybody. Come on, church. Because we know who we're serving, we know why we're here, we know where we're going. Come on, we have the answers to the questions of life that cause other people to freak out. So, oh, you know, I don't know, you know, we know. We know the author of our, our faith and the creator of the universe. So we should have emotional stability. We should have mental stability. Then we're told not to let ourselves be deceived. And last time we were together, we found out that if we're deceived, it's going to be partially our fault and partially our responsibility because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you've come to Christ, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You have a measure of the Holy Spirit. What is he? He's the referee and the umpire of your soul. When things come that are not right, that are wrong, that are not of God, the Holy Spirit's gonna warn you. He's gonna red flag, come on. He's gonna blow the whistle. And usually when we're deceived, come on, nobody has to tell any of us that we're doing wrong. Because our conscience and the Holy Spirit as long before we've been pulled aside and confronted by another brother or sister or pastor has to say, hey, you know, the Holy Spirit's already thrown the flag and blown the whistle. We've went over a lot of speed bumps. So if we wind up deceived, it's because there's something in us that ignored the truth and loved the lie. And there's a personal responsibility attached to that. Now, this season that we're in is a good test of our stability in all three of these areas, mental, emotional, and spiritual. All of those things are being tested. How are you doing with your tests? How's your test score? Well, don't worry. You're going to get a retest. There'll be more tests. But we need to be tested in those areas. Why? To make sure that we're spiritually sound. We're spiritually stable, uh, that we have all of these things in order because you and I, the church, need to be example for the lost. Now, our text told us that the end would not come. <coughs> and what does it mean by the end? 
that the end means his return. Remember, we talked about his return in two phases. He's going to return once to take his bride, and he's going to return the second time to start his millennial reign at the Mount of Olives. We're going to talk about that. But the, the, the end will come what when these two things happen. So there have to be two things that happen. The first one was the apostasy. And remember, we said it sounds like pasta, but it's not that good. It's worse. The apostasy is a great falling away. It's people who came to Jesus and said, I, I believe, I, I'm a Christian. Now they say, you know what, I, I, I recant that. I'm not a Christian. I'm not aligned with this. I don't believe that. And they walk away. And we said, why in the world would anyone ever do that? It just sounds so wrong. Well, when we consider the parable of the sower, we understand this type of soils that were there. There were only one type of soil that bore fruit. What does that mean? Some people are going to say yes to Jesus, but then when things come along, they're going to they're walk away. Why? Because the soil of their heart wasn't good ground and it didn't produce fruit. Now, look, I don't like that any more than you do, but it's the word of God and it shows human nature. So there are always apostasies, falling aways that come on the end of revivals. Because a lot of people who get saved, you know, didn't sign up for the right reason. They did it out of emotions. They did it out of, you know, peer pressure. They did it because it seemed right at the time. Hello? So apostasy is something that's going to come. You said, what fuels the apostasy? There's false teachers and persecution. And when those uh, things hit the church, one of two things will happen. Uh, some, of the, some people will you know, get galvanized and more sold out to Christ 100%, and the other group will walk away. Why will they walk away? Well, they'll be drawn away by false doctrine that doesn't require conversion, repentance, or holy living. How many realize there are churches that say there are Christian churches that say you can become a Christian without repenting? that you can be converted without repenting of your sins, that you can be a Christian without holy living. And the Bible says the exact opposite. You can't be born again unless you repent of your sins, amen? And repentance doesn't just mean I acknowledge you, I'm a sinner. Repentance means turning away from your sin and moving in the opposite direction. <laughs> It's a, it's a 180 degree turn. So sin is here, I turn this way and I move towards holiness. No, you, you can't make a 360 degree turn on sin. I'm a Christian. No, you, you, listen, there has to be repentance. Some of you will remember that and it will save you. But uh, repentance is part of it. So churches that preach this easy peasy hot tub of Christianity mess, messed up with philosophy and new age philosophy and all this nonsense. It doesn't require anything of the sinner, but it, it just it come in, do what you want. Everything's okay. Everything is good. You know, all roads lead to God and it's just a lie. And that false doctrine will lead many astray. Many will be drawn away by that. 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. Listen to this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves. Listen, teachers in accordance to their own desires or lusts and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So the, the, the Bible predicts that these things will happen in the last days, that people will not endure it. We don't want to hear that anymore, Pastor. We don't want to hear about sin. We don't want to hear about holiness. We just want you to entertain us and play some good music and make us feel good, but don't you dare confront us. Because what happens when we're confronted with our sin, it, it demands that we either repent or harden our hearts. 
So false teachers will lead many astray. Also, there'll be some that are offended at the fact that they would have to suffer persecution to remain a Christian. You see, right now it's easy to be a Christian, and, and there's really not too much persecution that we feel in the West here. Our brothers and sisters in other areas are laying their lives literally down. They're in prison, they're murdered. Why? For professing Christ. Yet there'll be some that, you know, will say, well, when the persecution comes, I didn't sign up for this. I, I'm not, you know, hey, I'll be a Christian as long as it's easy peasy, but, you know, at the minute it costs me something, I'm out. Matthew 24, 10 says this, and, they, and then shall many be offended. Isn't this a wonderful scripture for our spineless little offended generation? They're offended at everything. Oh, I'm offended, I'm offended. As if the fact that you're offended means that I have to do anything except have a nice offended day. <laughs> and everybody's offended and thinks that, well, you have to change your beliefs, you have to change your allegiance to Jesus, you have to change your narrow-minded philosophy about sin and holiness because I'm offended. Here it speaks to the generation. And then shall many be offended. At what? At, you know, persecution might be attached to being a Christian and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. I can already see this happening in the church. Even just what, as what happened with COVID and masks and people fighting and getting nasty with each other and all this and who, who to believe. Should we believe the word of God? Should we believe Jesus? Should we believe the scientists that have been wrong all along? And people are fighting with each other. Hello, I'm preaching. I don't know. Maybe you want to put your seatbelt on, but it's going to get rougher, okay? I'm glad you're here today. But people get offended and, and there's infighting even in the church. And what, what's going to happen is there's going to be that falling away and people are going to be offended at persecution and at, you know, at those who hold on to the truth of God's word are going to be offensive to those who abandon it. Wow. So the apostasy will come. And then the second thing that's going to happen is the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And this is our new material for the week. Look how much fun we've had already and we didn't get to the new stuff yet. The man of lawlessness will be revealed. And this describes, you know, when it says the man of lawlessness in our text, the son of destruction. <coughs> what it's talking about there is the Antichrist. The man of lawlessness is a direct reference to the coming Antichrist. What does lawlessness mean? If you study that word out in the Greek, it's anomia, and it means without the law, a lawbreaker, a complete disregard for God's law, unrestrained sin, iniquity, and disobedience. That, that sounds like a, a bad combination of traits to have in one person, doesn't it? A complete lawbreaker, a disregarder of God's law, unrestrained sin, iniquity, and disobedience. The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist who is coming, will be this lawless person who constantly breaks God's law and demands that everyone who serves him break God's law as well. So let's just take a look at the Antichrist and what that means. Now, the Antichrist is both a demonic spirit and a literal person. It's a spirit and a person. And I want to show you the difference between those two things. The Antichrist is a spirit. John defines the spirit of Antichrist in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. This is what John says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone into the world. Listen, verse two, by this you know the spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So the test is this. Do they confess that Jesus has come in the flesh? And what happens is those who say, no, Jesus didn't come. No, there's no, there, there's no literal Christ. He didn't come. He didn't die. He didn't raise again. That's the spirit of Antichrist. What, what is it about the spirit of Antichrist? It always undercuts who Jesus is. It wants to minimize who Jesus is. See, if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, then he didn't die on the cross for our sins, and we're all still lost in our sins. There are Christian churches that don't, you know, say Jesus came in the flesh. There are many cults and world religions that deny that Jesus came in the flesh, and they are the arms of the spirit of Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist spirit has been in operation in the earth for a long time. The Antichrist spirit was the spirit that drove Pharaoh to murder the Hebrew children to stop the coming Messiah. You see, the, they murdered those Hebrew children in Israel, not in their minds just because they were getting too big, there was too many Hebrews. No, it was a demonic spirit. Why? Because the devil knew from Genesis when God said that, you know, you'll strike at their heel, but they're going to crush your head, that there was a coming Messiah that would be born out of the bloodline of man. And so what has he been trying to do? He's been trying to cut that off so that the Messiah couldn't come. And that's why all those children were murdered. Then the Antichrist spirit again surfaces his head when Herod kills all the Hebrew children again to stop the Messiah. This time they heard that he was born. So let's kill all the children under the age two to make sure we wipe him out. Wow. The Antichrist spirit is the same spirit that drove the religious leaders to crucify Jesus. Now that he's born, let's just kill him. Do you see the pattern here? There are many more instances. The Antichrist spirit opposes every Bible-believing Christian, every gospel-preaching church, and every move of the Holy Spirit. The, the Antichrist spirit wants to stop the move of the Holy Spirit. It's the Antichrist spirit that we see at work today in the nations, in the news, in social media. It censors the truth. It champions lies and it silences the church, and it's an antichrist spirit. Understand what's behind all of the nonsense that we see so clearly, and we say, can't people see the lies? No, the antichrist spirit has them given over to a deluding spirit that causes them to believe the lie. So the antichrist spirit has been in operation in the earth for a long time and we see it moving today. Why do you think that it opposes everything true? When you listen to the media and you listen to what people think who don't know Jesus, you realize everything that's good, everything that's right, everything that's righteous, everything that's godly, they're against. Wow. That's not just them being knuckleheads or you know, they're just bad people or their parents didn't raise them right or they, they, they got timeouts instead of spankings. That's not what the problem is. The problem is it's a deluding spirit. It's an antichrist spirit that causes people to believe the lie, to champion the lie, to hate the truth and want to silence the church. So the antichrist is a spirit, but he is also a literal person. The antichrist will be a literal person in the last day's tribulation period. Now, he has many names, the antichrist. And Dr. David Jeremiah is a great Bible teacher. He, he, he does a great job uh, teaching from the book of Daniel, among other things. And he's noted, Dr. Jeremiah has noted that the, the Antichrist has over 25 names in Scripture. 
Uh, and I don't have time to unpack all of those for you today, but let's just look at a few of them. In the Old Testament, just in the book of Daniel, uh, the Antichrist has four names. In Daniel 7, he's the little horn. In Daniel 8, he's the king of fierce countenance. Apparently, the guy's going to have a grumpy looking face. In Daniel 9, he's the prince that shall come. In Daniel 11, he's the willful king. In the New Testament, Matthew, Matthew calls him the abomination of desolation. John the Revelator, who wrote the book of Revelation, who received it from God on the Isle of Patmos, calls him the Antichrist. John is the only one who calls him Antichrist. Listen, they tried to kill John. They boiled him in oil and it didn't kill him, so they just exiled him. And while he's exiled on Patmos, the Holy Spirit gives him the book of Revelation. That's why we call him John the Revelator. He calls this man Antichrist. Uh, also in the book of Revelation, he's called the second beast. So we covered just a few names of them. You could study more if you want to invest your time in doing that. But, you know, we have to understand who he is. The more we understand uh, about his attributes, the more we understand, you know, what he's going to be like. In this text here, he's called the son of destruction. Why? Because he will attempt to destroy every good thing that God put in place over his creation. He will destroy it, then he will rebuild it. So he's going to destroy and recalibrate. What's he going to recalibrate? The world's economy, the world's governments, the world's theology and morality. It will be a total societal makeover. Antichrist will subdue the nations, will take control of the economy, will head all the governments, will make a one-world religious system so that he can rule and reign over all the earth. This is what the Bible says is to come. You say, when is it coming? I'm not quite sure, but there are a lot of signs out there that it's falling into place rapidly. So we need to understand these things and what spirit is behind them. He will be a literal uh, person. He will destroy and recalibrate all of these things. The Antichrist will be the quintessential rebellious sinner who breaks every one of God's commands and demands that those who follow him do the same. There are 28 biblical characteristics of the Antichrist, and I gave you a handout today so you could reference them, and I want to just go through them quickly with you. Number one, he will rule a revived Roman Empire. The book of Daniel talks about a, a great uh, colossus that represents different world empires, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, and the Antichrist is going to rule over a revived Roman uh, empire. And so we're going to see him come in Europe and take control of a conglomerate of nations. That will be the initial thing until it spreads all over the earth. Uh, uh, number two, he will subdue three kings. Number three, he will be different from all other kings. Number four, he will rise from obscurity. Daniel 7 calls him the little horn. He's, if he's alive in the earth right now, he may not even be a household name. That's why when people say, oh, you know, I think all the last presidents, they said, well, this president is the Antichrist, and this president, look, it's not Trump, it's not Obama, it's not the Bush brothers, okay? They're too, they're too visible. Everybody knows them. He's the little horn. He'll rise from obscurity. He will speak boastfully. Uh, number six, he will blaspheme God. He will oppress the saints for three and a half years. He will try to change the calendar. He will try to change the laws. He will be succeeded by Christ 
not an earthly ruler. So when his rule is done and Jesus deals with them, we won't have another earthly ruler. Jesus will take dominion and the millennial reign will begin. He will confirm a covenant with the Jews and the Gentiles. He will put an end to the Jewish sacrifices in the mid-trib, three and a half years. He will not answer to any earthly authority. He will show no regard for the religion of his ancestors. Many Bible scholars predict that the, the, the Antichrist will have Jewish roots. He will not believe in any God except himself. He will have no regard for the desire of women. Uh, most scholars believe he will either be asexual or homosexual. He will claim to be a great, greater than any other God. He will claim to be God. He will only honor a God of the military. He will be accomplished by, accompanied by miracles, signs, and wonders. He or his false prophet will claim to be Christ. He will claim Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Well, there's the mark of the Antichrist. He will deny that Jesus is the Messiah. He will be worshiped by many. He will hate a nation that initially will have some control over his kingdom, but he will destroy that nation. He will appear to survive a fatal injury, but then he will mock the resurrection of Jesus Christ by resurrecting. He will be related to the number 666, and he will be empowered by the devil himself. The Antichrist will be all these things and probably a lot more. He will be evil incarnate. We're going to talk about that a little bit here today. So from our text in verse 4, I want to point out this as we stick to the exposition of the text. Verse 4 says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So the Antichrist is going to manipulate and challenge the cults and the world religions of the world that don't name Jesus Christ to be who he is. And I want you to know something about the Antichrist. He will not be inclusive. He will not be inclusive. In a world that preaches tolerance and inclusivity, when Antichrist comes, that's all going to disappear. The Antichrist is not an all roads lead to God guy, okay? He's it's my way or the highway. He will have little tolerance for every other religious expression of worship other than using it for his own design and then abolishing it. Revelation 17 tells us how how he will deal with the one world religious system that he initially creates that the Bible calls the great prostitute. You see, when God extracts the true church from the earth that believes the word of God and the apostles' doctrine and serves God with oil in their lamps, when he catches up his church, what will be left behind are all the people who had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof. So you'll have these churches left behind that don't preach the Bible, that don't follow God's morality, that have changed everything, that have driven Christ out. Come on, are you getting all this today? We see all this happening around us. If you look at the churches that Jesus talked to, he said Philadelphia would be spared from the, the coming uh, you know, travail and all the tribulation. But some of the churches were told, you're gonna go through it. Why? Because you were unfaithful to me. Oh, it's quiet now. Hey, it's Bible. Don't get mad at me. I didn't write it. But the Antichrist will not be inclusive. And, and he's going to take all of these religious systems that are left and he's going to meld them together to make one world universal religious system that the Bible calls the great prostitute. Why does it call it the great prostitute? Because it was unfaithful to God. It was un, these churches were unfaithful to preach the truth of the gospel, so they became unfaithful to God and God looks at them as prostitutes. And when you hear how God refers to them, you see that that's not the type of church you want to be in it says this 
here in, in Revelation 17, one through two. And there came one of the seven angels, which had seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, come here, I will show unto you the judgment of the great prostitute that sits upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So uh, Revelation 17, five and six has a little bit more to say about the great prostitute. Listen, upon her forehead is written, mystery Babylon the great, mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So notice that this church system that has been meld together from all the unfaithful systems that didn't preach the word of God, what? They have the blood of the saints and the martyrs in them. Why? Because the false churches and the false religious systems have always persecuted and killed the prophets and the people of God. And God says, what, they're drunken with the blood of the martyrs. Wow. And here's this system that becomes this one world system. And the Antichrist will use it for a while. And then he will destroy it at some point. Once he's used them to gain the trust and affection of all the nations, he will destroy and devour the great prostitute. Why? Because he doesn't want to share control and power and worship with anyone else. He wants it all for himself. So, you say, how's he going to do this? The Antichrist is going to unify the religious systems by promising them peace. How many understand that when people are promised peace or safety, or they'll give up all their rights, they'll give up all, everything, just, oh, just make it good. We see this in our own nation right now. It's amazing what people will give up for a $1,200 check. And so here we go. The Antichrist is going to tell him, well, I'm going to broker a peace deal. How's he going to do this? He's going to do what no other world leader has ever been able to do. When a person becomes a leader in the world, what do they try and do if they're on a national stage? They try and broker a peace deal between Israel and, and the Gentile nations that oppose her. Isn't that true? Everyone, Carter, Bush, all of them, they all tried to broker a peace deal. Have any of them ever been successful? Come on. Will you watch SpongeBob on TV? <laughs> no, they've never been successful, not even for a short period of time. They all try it, but it never works. Why? Because the Antichrist is going to do it. He's going to broker a seven-year peace deal between these nations. He's going to take the violence and the fighting and all out of it, and he's going to make this peace that the world is so drunk for. You say, where do you get that from? Daniel 9, 27 tells us about the peace deal that Antichrist will broker. It says, and he will make a firm covenant, so it's going to work, with the many for one week. Daniel's broken down into weeks. Uh, that would be, one week would be seven years. It's a seven-year peace deal. But in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years, that's the mid-tribulation mark there. Listen to this. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering and the wing of and the wing of abominations will come, one who makes desolation, even unto a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolation. So it's a seven-year peace deal that's broken in the middle. This peace deal is gonna work. Everybody's gonna say, oh, peace, isn't the Antichrist wonderful? He's gonna use it to galvanize the religious communities and the nations of the world will worship him. Eventually, he will turn on the great prostitute and devour her. Why? Because he wants the control and the power and the worship 
all for himself alone. So we see that the judgment for those churches that were unfaithful to God is that the Antichrist will completely destroy them with the sword. The second part of our text here says he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Let's talk about that as I close this message down. We've all heard the expression, they got a one-track mind. Have you heard that? Uh, did you guys die? Is it hot in here? What, what's, uh, uh, uh. Have you heard that expression? You got a one-track mind. Well, the Antichrist will have a one-track mind. And I'm going to show you where he gets that one-track mind from. He will be the quintessential sinner and lawbreaker, and he will have this one-track mind. He will want to be worshipped, and he, that's all he really wants. The Antichrist will be this demonically influenced man who gets all his power and authority from Satan himself. Just as Jesus was God incarnate, he was God with us, it says in Matthew 1.23, Emmanuel, God with us. The Antichrist will be the devil incarnate. He will be the devil among us. And there again, the Antichrist will, will mock, Satan will always mock what God does. You're going to see the beast get shot and resurrected to mock the resurrection. You're going to see an unholy trinity of the false prophet, uh, the beast, and the Antichrist. Why does he have three parts to his headship? Because he's mocking the trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everything God does, the devil counterfeits. He has no creative ability. Understand these things. Understand eschatology, what's, what's happening here. So he's, he's going to come and, uh, you know, he's going to mock the Trinity. He's going to mock the incarnation of Christ. And why is this significant? Because it shows us where the Antichrist gets his one-track mind from. He gets it from Satan himself. Satan's ultimate goal when he fell from heaven was to replace God and to be worshipped in place of God. This is what Lucifer wanted, and when he was struck out of heaven in judgment, he became Satan. He wanted to replace God and to be worshipped in place of God. You say, where did you get that? Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, a very important scripture. Write it down. Understand your enemy. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, here it is, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Verse 15 God's judgment to I will. He says, I will, I will, I will, I will be like the most high God. Verse 15, you shall be brought down to hell to the lowest depths of the pit. And Satan fell like lightning from the sky. <laughs> Notice the will there, the pride. I will, I will, I will. That's why pride is such a grievous sin when it submits it doesn't submit to authority. It doesn't submit to godliness. It's lawless. The man of lawless is all about accomplishing his own will. And sadly, those who follow him in our generation are all about doing their own thing. Don't tell me what's right or wrong. Don't tell me what's good or bad. Don't tell me what's holy and what's evil. I will do what I want. Not forever you won't. Someday, God will speak yet you shall be brought down to hell to the lowest depths of the pit. Wow. 
What does it mean when the text says he shall take his seat in the temple? This is a reference to, to the moment in the mid-tribulation, three and a half years, halfway into the seven-year tribulation period. The Antichrist seats himself in the rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem and declares himself to be God and demands that people worship him as God. So the Jews are going to rebuild their temple and they're going to reinstitute their sacrificial system. You say, why? Because they're getting ready to receive Messiah. They don't realize they've missed the first coming of Messiah. The church is extracted now and God has got his eyes focused firmly on Israel. He will come back to the Mount of Olives and the temple will be in operation up to the mid-trib point. But then the Antichrist says, no, I'm breaking my deal with you. I'm gonna sit inside your newly built temple. I'm gonna sit down and declare that I'm God and demand that everyone worship me. This is gonna be a deal breaker for Israel. We're gonna see a chain of events unfold from that moment forward. This three and a half period marks the period of a shift from the tribulation to the great tribulation and all the judgments that are pouring out. If you study the book of Revelation, you'll understand these things. But he says it will take his seat in the temple. This is this reference here that we're seeing where the Antichrist uh, lays all his cards on the table. No more playing nice. He will devour the religious systems. He will kill the great prostitute and he will demand all the worship for himself. It'll happen in the mid-tribulation period. He'll break that peace deal at the 3.5 year mark. It will begin the great tribulation period. It will be a sign of the second coming, the second part of Jesus' coming. He's already come for that surprise catching up of the church, but now he's gonna come again and every eye will see him this time. He's gonna touch down on the Mount of Olives, he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and the millennial reign will begin. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking about that the other day. What an amazing period it'll be when Jesus himself rules for a thousand years. Wow. All the crooked things of humanity will be made straight. All the injustices, all the prejudice, all the persecution, all the immorality, all the governmental corruption. Of course, the bride is going to come back with him and we're going to rule and reign with him. What a glorious day that will be. But he will sit himself down. Now, notice these things that are happening here are going to happen uh, in, in a course of time. And it doesn't say that we have to see all this before the end comes. It says that first he will just have to reveal himself. The church will see the revealing in some ways. I believe that we're going to know who the Antichrist is, but God will remove us at that point because the tribulation will start. And this is what marks the start of the tribulation. The outpouring of wrath from that point forward will not be for the bride. It will not be for the victorious church. It will be for the churches that are compromised and the world systems that reject that Jesus has come in the flesh. So understand all of these things. And I want to tell you, you know, don't get so excited about, you know, studying eschatology and knowing all these things about the Antichrist. I'm giving you the truth of God's word, but listen, focus on Jesus. <laughs> you know, we don't have to know all of these details, but we shouldn't be ignorant. Listen, and I read the back of the book and guess what? We win. <laughs> so study Jesus. Amen. Get in his presence. Now is not the time to be in compromise. Now is not the time to be in sin. Now is the time to live ready, to be righteousness, to embrace holiness, amen? It's not the time for shacking up with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and playing house. It's not the time for fornication or adultery or pornography or being hooked in habitual sin. The church needs to repent and stop playing games with grace. 
and to get in the secret place and to confess our sins and to repent of them. Why? Because he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. And you and I better have oil in our lamps. Compromise and sin and habitual sin will just destroy. It's not the time to be out there, you know, carousing and partying and getting drunk and getting high. When I see what goes on in the church, even with our young people and what's permissible, some of us are going to miss it. You don't want to be left behind here. You say, are you trying to scare me? No, I'm just trying to tell the truth because I don't want you to be able to point your finger at me on that day and say, you never told me. I'm telling you, live ready, live right, stay in a state of spiritual readiness, keep oil in your lamps, and stay ready for his coming. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you, Lord, today for the truth of your word. Father, and I thank you for the saints of God that are here that have the maturity to hear a word like this, but if it's shaken some of us in our immaturity, God, help us to find a place of repentance. Don't let us walk out of this anointing and continue on the wrong trajectory of, of compromise and sin and lawlessness. Father, we see so much lawlessness in our generation, and we have a generation that wants to excuse it and justify it. We kill, we steal, we misuse, we burn down and loot our own cities. And, and Father, it shows the heart of the nation needs repentance. Help us, Lord, not only to be right and have oil in our lamps ourselves, but to preach the gospel to everyone who will hear, to pray for the souls of men that no one would be left behind, to endure the wicked hardships that will be inflicted by the Antichrist. But Lord, make us ready. Help us to watch for your coming. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, give him praise.